Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guests are Dr. Brian Pace and Dr. Nishane Devineau. They're authors of a paper entitled Right-Wing Psychedelia, Case Studies in Cultural Plasticity and Political Pluripotency. This is a piece they created to rebut the common cultural assumption that psychedelics have the potential to improve society because of some inherent characteristics that tend to point their users to a more liberal or free-thinking ideology. So this is what we kind of inherited from the 60s revolution, a conception that once you drop acid or take shrooms, soon enough, your hair gets longer automatically, you start protesting against the war, you become a vegetarian, move to a commune and start hugging trees. Even young Republicans can kind of tune in, turn on, drop out, and become like Abby Hoffman, the hip, radicalized leader of the Yippies. America has decided to devour its youth. We will resist. We will not participate in America's Children for Breakfast program. Fuck them! I invited Dr. Devineau and Dr. Pace on the show after I spoke to Shayla Love this spring. She's a reporter from Vice Magazine who often writes about the psychedelic landscape with a focus on its economic rollout. And she also problematizes the point of view that compounds can mystically, magically change a person or change society. Again, this idea inherited from anecdotal reports, from Hollywood movies, from books with titles like Consciousness Medicine and Be Here Now, is that once you've glimpsed the interconnectedness of the universe, you will naturally start to act in a more generous way. And usually this is implicit, but sometimes it becomes explicit. You can see it in the title of Michael Pollan's blockbuster book that everyone's read, and now the Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind. Pollan himself has been quoted as saying, there's so much authority that comes out of the primary mystical experience that it can be threatening to existing hierarchical structures. In other words, now that you've seen God and realized God is in your hand, in the hand of your brother, you realize like, everyone's your brother. When you really stop and think about it, you can see that this assumption about psychedelics is kind of everywhere. You can see it in the words of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies founder Rick Doblin, who truly believes that psychedelics can help fight fascism. And he's quoted as saying, the key challenge I see going forward with the psychedelic renaissance and also with the survival of humanity is that we have to really help fundamentalists of all the different religions move towards a more mystical orientation and psychedelics can help that. So warning, what Dr. Pace and Dr. Devineau have to say here flies in the face of all of this, just turns it upside down. In the discussion that follows, they suggest that psychedelics are simply non-specific amplifiers of their set and setting, which, they take pains to remind me, is within the capitalist realm. Very important. And that contrary to the de facto cultural credo, conservative, hierarchy-based ideologies are quite able to withstand the face-melting effects of a few hits of LSD. They'll talk about many cases where psychedelic users either remained authoritarian in their views or became conservatively radicalized after taking psychedelics. We also get into the conservative thought leaders who also happen to be psychedelic cheerleaders, like Jordan Peterson, as well as the moneyed individuals who are sometimes central players in the corporate psychedelic world, like Peter Thiel and Rebecca Mercer. I did not know that much about these individuals before our discussion, so I took the liberty of importing some clips that I found on YouTube that concern these famous folks uh, up for discussion, just in the hopes of better illustrating the points being made. I think you'll find that this discussion is peppered with a healthy amount of polite disagreement, but ultimately I think they won me over, and I, I found their argument truly mind-opening. I think that you will too. These two are deeply immersed within the field of psychedelics and their critique, I believe, is not of psychedelics themselves or of psychedelic psychotherapy per se, but perhaps the way that psychedelics are being rolled out in a mainstream market-based fashion with an emphasis on somewhat magical thinking, that they can change society for the better or that they will change society necessarily for the better. So with no further ado, let's go. Doctors Brian Pace and Shay Devino, thank you both so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having us. 
you two are the authors of a really interesting paper called Right-Wing Psychedelia, Case Studies in Cultural Plasticity and Political Pluripotency. I'd love to hear you explicate the thesis of your article, but first I'm interested in hearing you both speak a bit about the cultural assumption or assumptions around psychedelics that you set out to disprove here. I think that it's important to recognize that psychedelics are more than just chemicals. They are drugs that have been a part of our culture in a way that straddles the divide between seeming both novel and ancient. I think part of that tension is one of the reasons why people today have certain baked in assumptions about what psychedelics do to people, to their beliefs, to their attitudes, some of which may have grounding in the actual pharmacology, neuroscience, and psychology of these substances, and others which probably don't and are more entangled with certain features of the moment in which psychedelics previously, most recently, exploded onto the Western modern cultural scene as they're doing now. And I think I guess we just to chime in really viewed our paper as an intervention into the kind of conversation around psychedelics just because we saw a lot of you know excited media representations talking about how or mirroring some researchers who were making claims or sometimes researchers oftentimes they were people in industry who have financial incentive to pitch psychedelics in a certain way but there was a lot of circulating narratives about how psychedelics will change the world and we just need to get psychedelic medicine out to as many people as quick as possible in order to save change everything from political polarization to climate change so we felt that the situation was not as <laughs> straightforward as that. And the real impetus for this research is when this work was when we started seeing some of those narratives creeping into the peer-reviewed psychedelic literature, uh, not once, but several times in a way that very much contributed to this larger story, somewhat utopian and progressive story of the pharmacological action of classical psychedelics. Right. Yes. The, the, that utopian story being that psychedelics can help fight fascism, that they'll generally, if not all the time, most of the time lead to a more progressive or liberal ideology. And the two of you kind of turned that on its head. And I, I think it's a really interesting mission that you're on because it's the prevailing ideology. And, and I would say that, that I had shared it either consciously or unconsciously, you know, certainly before being introduced to your ideas, maybe just due to my own experiences, but possibly just due to the kind of the overarching ideas in, in culture. Dr. Pace, you wrote an article. The article was Lucy in the Sky with Nazis. Yeah, sure. That was the first effort to document and intervene in this discourse that said that people are going to become more liberal and progressive as a result of taking the drug. And I think that from the perspective of looking at things through an interdisciplinary lens, and psychedelics are an interdisciplinary topic, it's impossible to fully understand them simply by looking at their chemical structure or measuring the head twitch response of rats in a laboratory. Simply looking at the historical record, also at recent ongoing dynamics, one can point to many accounts of individuals with across a broad spectrum of center libertarian leaning to far right, uh, outright fascist, and even historical fellow travelers of the Nazi party, people like Ernst Jünger, who was a Wehrmacht captain for the German army during World War II. He was a censor. He was a captain in occupied France, although he himself never joined the Nazi party. I think today we would say that's a Nazi. Junger is a comp complicated character, but we point to him first because he was brought to my attention through the work of Alan Piper, who's done a lot of uh, similar scholarship upon which we stand in some ways, but also because he's the man who coined the term psychonaut. Uh, and he was Albert Hoffman's tripping buddy. He was the person to whom Albert Hoffman looked for guidance as he was exploring LSD. So there's one example there of a, a man who, uh, in an unequivocal way, was definitely a, a hard conservative of his time. As we, we move through to contemporary characters, Joe Rogan was on his show telling people to vote Republican earlier this month. No one who was alive today had ever experienced a true pandemic, 
And I'm hoping that now that this is over, people are going to, you know, recognize that some serious errors were made and not repeat those. That's the best you can get out of it. So what do you tell those people? Vote Republican. (laughs) I pointed to him in that article and got quite a bit of flack because at that time he wasn't flying those colors as as high. But if it's it's pretty much there, what somebody's ideology. These are knowable things. So people fight about these topics. And they did. That article caused quite a bit of stir. And yet, so you have these sort of people across a broad spectrum of conservative ideologies who retain their their ideology after psychedelic experience. Or in the case of Columbus, Ohio's Andrew Anglin, the founder of the Daily Stormer, a very prominent, very youth-oriented neo-Nazi website, he became a neo-Nazi after extensive experience with psychedelics as a high schooler. So if these are wonder drugs to stop fascism, they're not working very well. The founder of a neo-Nazi website is facing a lawsuit for allegedly targeting a Jewish woman in Montana with a, quote, troll storm. Andrew Anglin, who founded the Daily Stormer, has been accused of launching a, quote, campaign of terror against the woman publishing her personal information on his website and triggering an army of neo-Nazi internet trolls to make thousands of hateful and terrorizing threats against her and her family. This might be an instructive time to define the term political pluripotency. Yeah, it's a borrowed term, but we thought it was apt. It's something that borrows from the biological lexicon, pluripotent cells are cells that are early on in development, more commonly referred to as stem cells. And so these are cells that can, due to response to various genetic or environmental signals, differentiate into a a wide variety of different tissue types, be it neural cells or uh, epidermis. So their, their fate effectively is not set. The political pluripotency of psychedelics refers to the fact that these substances, they do in fact elicit change. We're we're very interested in them for these purposes, therapeutically, even physiological changes when people are interested in things like neuroplasticity. So we know they're change agents, but essentially we defer to Groff, who pointed out that psychedelics seem to be nonspecific amplifiers of consciousness. And so one may be more subject to the set and setting, why one is taking psychedelics. A person who sets out to to change using psychedelics as a lever is going to be much more likely to have a personality shift, a behavioral shift, because they set that intention, that set. A person with a supportive community is more likely to make a change, positive or negative, depending on who they have around them and what those people want from them. Yeah, there's an interesting line in the article which makes reference to the ability of psychedelics to occasion mystical experiences. I think this is the line in this article, Nazism isn't rational, it's mystical, appealing to pathos. Is is the thought then that psychedelics in enhancing the connection to these mystical experiences may actually just amplify whatever pathos-oriented psychology one is already leaning towards, indifferent to whether that's left, right, or center? Yeah, mystical experiences are found amongst like Pentecostal tongue-speaking snake handlers. A touch of danger will short-circuit the logical mind and get into a community bonding experience as a result of those natural endorphins. Mystical experiences are not the sole purview of Episcopalians and contact jugglers. It's just not the case. That's good. I mean, I like what, what's happening here because we're sort of poking holes in the assumptions that are laden throughout the, the psychedelic experience. I'm going to bring up another assumption that I have, and I don't know, again, whether it's divine from my contact with culture or whether from my own mystical experiences, but there's this concept that if one takes psychedelics, one blends with the unity of all things, including the environment, and that at that point, one might become in a position to care more about the environment and become sort of ready to, to clean up. You know, one thing that we spent a lot of time thinking about and seeing evidence for was the fact that if you have a strongly hierarchy-based ideology, you are primed to interpret experiences of interconnection as experiences of connection to hierarchy. So you identify still like all is one, but all is one under this pyramid structure wherein serving the interests of those at the top 
is preserving the whole. We saw that example with people like Jordan Peterson, who is very interested in psychedelics, but has a very strong hierarchy-based view of reality. Peterson being an example, I would say, of a right-wing actor and thinker whose views were not pushed left at all through experience with psychedelics. The only reason anyone knows Jordan Peterson's name is he made a lot of noise about, about trans people. Yeah, and so there's all these pronouns that have come up. There's 70 different sets of pronouns approximately to to hypothetically describe people who don't fit anywhere on the gender spectrum, which is also something that I don't really understand. I don't understand that conceptually. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we will we'll come to that. But yeah, I just but the point the is well, okay, so now I'm comp- a person is compelled under Canadian law to use the pronoun of another individual's choice by on pain of law. And I thought, well no, that's not acceptable. It's one thing to put limits on what a person can't say, like say with hate speech laws, which I also don't agree with, by the way, but that's a different argument. I I think it's a narrower argument. But to compel me to use a certain content when I'm formulating my thoughts or my actions under threat of legislative action, I thought, no, there's no way I'm abiding by that. I don't care what your damn rationale is. We're compassionate. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're playing this radical collectivist left-wing game. You're trying to gain linguistic. You're trying to gain linguistic supremacy in the in the area of public discourse. You're doing that using compassion as a guise, and you're pulling the wool over people's eyes. And you're not going to do it with me. That's why he's famous. He has had a long history, as we've learned, of studying psychedelics quietly, to the extent of that we only know that he had what he would characterize like some kind of a mystical experience while using uh, psilocybin or one can infer that from the way that he talks about it and that he thinks they're important and dangerous. The other thing that we're concerned about is the degree to which he has been embraced by influential figures in the psychedelic movement for, I would say, we would say practical and pragmatic sort of audience optimization reasons. And yet, we're talking about a group of individuals who are taking suggestibility-enhancing drugs, listening to a demagogue. Yeah, let's talk about some more of the more controversial folks who are in the psychedelic space, particularly the moneyed individuals. Peter Thiel might be a good person to start with. Peter Thiel, for those of y'all who are listening don't know, he's a billionaire. He was a co-founder at PayPal and Usually his bio goes, was an early investor in Facebook, but what he's been doing, aside from investing in other tech companies throughout Silicon Valley, including psychedelics, like Atai and Compass, where he has significant stakes, since essentially the post-9-11 era, Thiel has been investing in programs that service the national security state. His... CEO for Palantir, which to be clear is named after those orbs in the Lord of the Rings that Sauron uses to spy on everyone. Yeah, Peter Thiel has been essentially building a national security service software apparatus empire with Palantir. This is just one of his ventures. And effectively, the reality of drone bombings is that they result in significant post-traumatic stress disorder for the civilians they regularly hit. This is Peter Thiel's speech at the Republican National Convention in 2016. Good evening. I'm Peter Thiel. I'm not a politician, but neither is Donald Trump. Our government is broken. Our nuclear bases still use floppy disks. Our newest fighter jets can't even fly in the rain. When when I was a kid, the great debate was about how to defeat the Soviet Union, and we won. Now we are told, now we are told that the great debate is about who gets to use which bathroom. This is a distraction from our real problems. Who cares? Of course, every American has a unique identity. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. But most of all, I am proud to be an American. (laughs) 
one of the things that we get to towards the end of the paper is the role of capitalism within like left right politics and fundamentally a belief that capitalism is the best way to structure society is a right-wing position so it's like in the united states we have two essentially like what would from a global context be considered two right-wing parties whether it's like center right in the case of the democrats or a farther right case of republicans if it's a bit of a sleight of hand when you are purporting to be solving things like political polarization and climate change by monopolizing access to or attempting to monopolize access to psychedelic medicines. Yeah, it should be pointed out that the sort of surveillance apparatus, the digital surveillance apparatus that has been created by individuals like Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel, that this came out of Silicon Valley innovation, very much stood on a foundation of people who are very interested in taking psychedelics. As we note in the paper, there are many billionaires more every day who are open about the fact that they, as some of the richest individuals on the planet, deny themselves no reasonable pleasure, including psychedelics. So we point to tech giants like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, are people who are on record as having taken psychedelics. And you can't be like a billionaire who is not sitting and profiting on massive wealth inequality. And yes, this does include Bill Gates and his charitable giving. It'd be better if these individuals did not extract so much wealth from the rest of society and maybe paid their taxes or something like that. There's also the case of Rebecca Mercer. In recent years, Rebecca Mercer has donated more than $1 million to the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, a fact about which Rick Doblin, MAPS founder, is quite open. Can you tell us about Mercer and her family? Rebecca Mercer is the daughter of Robert Mercer, who is a billionaire. It's a, a very wealthy family. The Mercers, Robert Mercer in particular, co-founded Cambridge Analytica with Steve Bannon of the Trump administration. Also more surveillance, big data crunching. Cambridge Analytica used a big data strategy to get Trump into the White House. Rebecca Mercer has her own resume as the co-founder of both Parler and Breitbart.com, a white nationalist outlet. It's fair to call Rebecca Mercer by her actions for her willful associations for impact on society, the things that she is building would like to see built. It's fair to call her one of the largest funders of the Global Fascist Project. So Rebecca Mercer is the middle daughter of New York hedge fund executive Robert Mercer. Of his three daughters, she really shares his political, his political interests and focus. And she, in the last several years, has really emerged as a person in the family who's spearheading their political investments. They refuse to speak to the media or give any interviews. So we really have to analyze their investments to get a sense of where they're putting their focus. And last week I attended a conference here in Washington sponsored by the Heartland Institute where the Mercers were in attendance. And this was really a two-day two showcase of scientists who advocate against the prevailing wisdom that humans indeed are contributing to global warming. The Mercers have supported the Heartland Institute. It appears they continue to support it. Uh, and as we saw today, uh, President Trump is rolling back Obama-era climate regulations. That seems to be something that the Mercers are very much in favor of. Yeah, like I said, I've heard Rick Doblin present before. In 2019, he came to Esalen and spoke about working with Rebecca Mercer, and he's quite open about their association. It's a worthy goal to want to solve issues of post-traumatic stress disorder, pharma pharmaceutically or otherwise. It's a worthy goal to decriminalize, I would argue, all drugs, but also psychedelics in particular. But I would say from a, a means and ends perspective, I take issue with and disagree with the idea that we should that anyone should be collaborating with fascists to achieve those ends. It was just a really interesting moment. Again, like Rick was just glowing with pride when talking about working with the Mercer family and securing this donation, I think because he saw it as an example of reaching across the aisle. Do you feel it's just willfully naive to collaborate with folks who are acting in such a way and to believe that there's not going to be a kind of quid pro quo? 
he's being truthful when he's saying that these right-wing actors don't have control over the day-to-day operations at at maps and isn't aren't necessarily influencing their scientific program. One of the concerns that we have in general with, and this gets back to Jordan Peterson, where just seeing how there's been this kind of cultural blowback just in the past year against trans and other LGBTQ communities in this, especially in the United States, globally even, there's been a lot of, Jordan Peterson, for example, has openly spoken to Ben Shapiro about how conversion therapy, attempting to change people's gender and sexuality, you know, orientations are, it's a good thing, actually, even though it's a harmful (laughs) thing to try to force people to be something that they are not. A lot of the therapy around the use of psychedelics is actually oriented towards getting people to change their sense of who they are in relation to their trauma, in relation to their addiction. And so we're fine-tuning a therapy that's attempting to change identity and personality in close contact with right-wing actors who are openly spreading the idea that it's a good idea to to try to use precisely such technologies to change minority identities. And so to me, it's those are things that should not be mixing at all. And we shouldn't be inviting right-wing reactionaries into the conversation when we have a highly impressionable experiences mixed with the potential to change identity and personality. Our podcast today is brought to you by BetterHelp. People who listen to this podcast know that I'm a huge fan of therapy. I embarrassed myself in an episode with Dr. Richard Schwartz, during which we basically do IFS therapy live. And I gotta tell you, that was such a game changer. But I've been doing therapy since my late 20s. To me, therapy's everything. You know, it really is. It's helped me get through some of the roughest times in my life and live my life more truly. BetterHelp provides online therapy directly to you at a price that's more affordable than traditional offline therapy. So it's a great way to invest in yourself without breaking the bank and just kind of experiment with talking to another individual whose only job in the world is to help you unravel yourself and take a look at your defenses. When you sign up, you'll match with a therapist according to your needs. And who knows, it might take a few tries to find the right fit for you, so BetterHelp makes it easy and free to change therapists if needed. They have a special offer for our listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Esalen. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash Esalen. When they ask you how you heard of BetterHelp, be sure to type in Voices of Esalen. One of the things that we do touch on in the paper is that the, these assumptions, this ideology that psychedelics is going to bring about broad political and social change in a pharmaceutical manner, in a driven manner. Rick Doblin has been one of the champions of this idea for decades at this point, many instances of talking about the better worlds that we could build uh, with psychedelic therapy. And setting aside the focus on, for instance, veterans and police officers as the the PTSD mascot, who it should be plainly stated part of their job and function in society is to cause trauma in other targeted communities. We essentially point to the fact that one might be more willing to make these kinds of Faustian bargains if you subscribe to what we characterize as a Trojan horse theory of change, that folks like Rebecca Mercer are actually having the wool pulled over their eyes when they're giving a million dollars to Rick Doblin, because actually what Rick Doblin is peddling is Nazi kryptonite, and it's just not true. That's great. I appreciate that. That's a that's an interesting way to to put it, I, I think I'm imagining it coming from Rick's perspective is that he believes so deeply in the in the mission of psychedelic psychotherapy that he's willing to take the chance of collaborating with whomever will push that across the finish line. You've made some really interesting points about the psychedelic renaissance occurring within the setting of capitalism, and that's hard to change. I'm wondering if you are problematizing also the, the current trend in psychedelic psychotherapy are there things that that are problematic about it that we're that are not part of the discussion often 
But can I actually respond quickly to what you were just saying right before that? Just because your point about this kind of ends justifies the means logic. Like we've seen this play out in other contexts. We've seen this play out with the internet, where there was this idea that the the, the internet was inherently democratizing and it would connect people across the world and share information. And so there was this kind of enthusiasm and uncritical people allowed essentially these big companies to come in and control the internet to the extent that now it's like, it's been built up in a way where there's this financialization and control of the internet in a way that didn't have to be built this way. We could have earlier on built into the way that the internet was being developed less of a hierarchical kind of centralized control of the way that's been rolled out. So a similar thing is going on with psychedelics right now, where it's this enthusiasm. It's inherently getting people in touch with all that is and making people care about other people. And so let's not question how it's being rolled out. But what we argue is that it does actually matter how it's going to be rolled out. There are these different visions for what the future of psychedelic access in society is going to look like. And we can, at these earlier stages do things right by preventing monopolized kind of capitalist control of the landscape and actually making psychedelics for the people and accessible to the people. We could talk all day about this because it's literally the water in which we swim. As we've pointed out in other writings and other venues, the set and setting ghost, this is the central dogma of the of psychedelics. It's, it's what is going to predict how one's subjective experience is going to go, right? And so writ large, what we are pointing to, this psychedelic renaissance that we're having, the set and setting of that is capitalism, is the system that we're struggling against some of us because it is engaged in an ecocide. It's undermining the, the basis of, of our current civilization and future ones. So the reality that there are alternate modes that psychedelics could be accessed, we could just point out that mushrooms grow from shit without any help from anybody else. And Compass Pathways recently won an extremely well-funded and executed challenge to its patents. It won. And now these these compounds will be made to be accessed through an insurance uh, apparatus that until very recently I would not have been able to access. I was uninsured for the last three years. Just to take the devil's advocate perspective on it, if you believe in the mission of psychedelic psychotherapy, which I do, I find it exciting and interesting. And you realize that it's only going to be widely distributed through existing modes. And that existing mode is capitalism, which shitty as it is also the prevailing mode, and we don't see it going anywhere, could it legitimize working through those channels in order to widely help, say, folks suffering from your garden variety PTSD or low-grade depression or end-of-life anxiety, alcoholism, several of the things that psychedelics have been shown through trials to be effective? You did say the word trials. This is not medicine that has gone through the same hoops and hurdles that say your antibiotics or your over-the-counter medication has. So there's still a lot of unknowns about the real efficacy, the for whom, under what conditions. Last I checked, roughly 500 people have been through clinical trials with MDMA, less with psilocybin. That's not to discount that people have had anecdotal transformative and healing experiences with psychedelics. I'm one of them. But in terms of rolling something out and charging what we charge in this country and others for things that we deem medicine, A, we haven't done those things to create that designation. And B, I'm not convinced that is the mode that's going to actually create access any more than, say, decriminalization already has there was a time in these debates where people said it's decriminalization is never going to work. The American public will never stand for it. And yes, it's true. There was synergy between the conversations around medicalization that helped give decriminalization a leg up. On offer, it's unclear whether medicalization is offering clear benefits because that work hasn't been done yet. And I think there's a difference too between trying to create a pathway within the existing medical field and what some 
industry actors are doing, which is to make it harder to do things other ways. Because there's a financial incentive that some of the capitalist side of things have acknowledged that it is better for their bottom line to be the way that you can access these experiences. Because then, you know, people who have intense trauma and want to work through something with a therapist, like it, it might make sense to have a therapist with you to process things as they come up. But for other people who would want to just take it in the woods with friends, if the way to do it is medically, then people will come up with medical reasons to do it in a medical context, but that's not necessarily in their best interest or what they want to do. So I think proliferating the ways that people have, the choices that people have is something that is good, but a lot of the people who are trying to do things in the medical way are trying to limit the options of doing it in other ways. Yeah, and real quick to jump off on that, it's often, too often, unsaid that usually psychedelic researchers are those who've had a beneficial experience with psychedelics themselves in a non-clinical fashion. And under a meteor shower in jacuzzi or hiking through an old growth forest or in the desert with a bunch of weirdos is how you know, these individuals have ex accessed ecstatic wonder. To me, the most exciting prospect is using the psychedelics with a therapist. The MAPS protocol seems like it would lead to positive outcomes, more so at least than taking MDMA at a club. There, there are a lot of people do make this comparison with clubbing as being this recreational thing, but there, there are a lot of people who have expressed a lot of healing experiences of being in a group with others sharing in this communal experience and kind of getting outside of their normal, isolated kind of day-to-day -day operation that can actually be highly therapeutic for some people. And there's been issues with the MAPS protocol in particular. There's a lot of people who have been through MAPS clinical trials who expressed being extremely harmed actually by the approach that MAPS has been taking. And so I think there's a false dichotomy oftentimes between like just this needing to get it through the medical system, therefore maps is move fast and break things. But as people have mentioned with psychedelics, like th the things are people and there are different ways that you can do things therapeutically. And so thinking that you have the right answer of what you're doing with psychedelic therapy while people are getting hurt, dismissing the stories of people being hurt. And sometimes people are able to, people have been through the trials have said this specific X, Y, and Z caused me to have more trauma during this experience than I was dealing with beforehand, where it's specific, actionable, concrete information about what's going wrong, and that's being dismissed. I don't have a lot of faith in that as being the leading way for the future of psychedelic psychotherapy. I think there's a potential through an iterative process of experimentation, checking in with people who have been through the different modalities and how has this affected you? Are you better off? Were you harmed in this? And making adjustments that that kind of a humble, slower, more long-term, safer and beneficial approach is for the best. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't contrast the options are clubbing or maps, because I think there's a whole range of possible medical routes that are in between those or that have, I think more faith, I'd have more faith in. In, in psychedelic therapy, it's positive that psychedelics open a window of opportunity for therapy to do significant good. That's where we get the whole trope of 10 years of therapy in a single uh, afternoon. But conversely, if something bad, something negative, something malicious happens during a psychedelic session, that harm reverberates. It's quite deep. Part of the problem that other researchers in addition to us have noted is just that psychedelics are extremely powerful agents and people are extremely impressionable. And unfortunately, that kind of environment where you have vulnerable, impressionable people who are very subject to your power is attractive to people with extreme personalities of some kind where they enjoy having power over vulnerable, impressionable people. And we see this across the board in society. People who have a need, emotional need to dominate over people create life situations where they have access to vulnerable people, whether that's in the Boy Scouts, whether that's the Catholic Church. 
people will engineer scenarios where they are in that position of power. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that with psychedelics right now, where people are specifically drawn to, especially at this inflationary period of money and power being so amplified just the past few years as psychedelics have exploded onto the mainstream. There are a lot of people who have alternative reasons for being drawn to psychedelics that are about them and not about healing the person that they're the people that they're working with mm-hmm. and right now there's a lot of there's a lack of criticality within a lot of powerful people in the psychedelic world around who is being invited in to be in these positions of power and so we see this in maps trials like with the case of megan Busan, where jensen and dreyer the therapist co-therapist team that was working with megan Busan, there were red flags before they were put alone in a room with megan on mdma where Jensen had admitted to being during a public talk, almost getting into a relationship with someone or kind of sexually approaching someone who he was in a therapist relationship with. And he said, thank God that his supervisor walked by right then because he wouldn't, he doesn't know if he would have been able to control himself. And so this was out there. And yet when people are raising the issue, a lot of times people are brushed aside as being dramatic or just trying to cause problems. But oftentimes People who are making concerns about people are saying this because they have some reason. There's been red flags in the past. And so until we are able to deal with these interpersonal dynamics and to actually get competent, trained, safe, ethical uh, clinicians and therapists in the room with these people, with people who are coming to these trials, it's not going to be a safe environment for everyone. Yeah, you all make the a point too that with everybody getting excited about psychedelics being rolled out in a more recreational or medicalized setting, then more right-wing actors would have access to psychedelics, people who traditionally didn't really buy into this, into these drugs because they were illegal. Yeah. Any thoughts around that? Yeah. We talk about how like folks who are on the right typically exhibit a bit more deference to authority, to institutional power. We refer to a personality trait inclination called social dominance orientation. When things are blessed by the leader, they become okay. And we really can just point to Trump and the way that evangelical Christians fell in line with a serial philanderer, somebody who is just the nightmare of what the focus on the family has been saying since the 80s. But he was rich and promised to deliver them, win on Roe v. Wade, and they went along. Regardless, the idea, and we point to it with Ben Shapiro, who is like a conservative tastemaker. He's an ideologue. He's, he's on the vanguard of what's going on, as is Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson. Culturally speaking, with these groups, they're not alone, but they are influential. And Ben Shapiro uh, has taken no psychedelics, but he was having a conversation about psychedelics on the Rubin Report with Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson. Uh, And his two uh, friends, I guess, uh, colleagues, had both divulged their own experiences, Dave Rubin, recent, with psychedelics. And they said that there's something of value here. An anti-fascist journalism outlet called Bellingcat did a survey of online accounts where people were talking about their process of being red-pilled to Nazi ideology. And out of the 75 accounts that they considered, four of them specifically referenced taking LSD as pivotal in their adoption of Nazi ideology. That's crazy. It's just wild to consider. I just want to finish my thought here. Is it possible that trauma is what we should be zoning in on right now? Is it possible that experience with trauma, abandonment, abuse, isolation, is instrumental in developing a right-wing point of view, sympathetic to authoritarian overreach? And so if we can ameliorate the symptoms of that trauma through a combination of psychedelics and therapy, might these drugs in fact be instrumental in moving its recipients to a more progressive point of view? Yeah, I really psychedelics have the potential to change the world, but it depends how they're used. That's the, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's a potentiality that we can cultivate and nurture. 
in the case of changing people's you know, kind of de-radicalizing people, I think that you get into tricky territory because it's to an extent, sometimes these things are bound up with people's sense of self. And so the ethics of trying to change people without their consent is murky, but under underlying people want to change and they do have these traumas and these kind of parasitical weird ideas that they've absorbed from growing up in the culture that they did and they want to work through that, I think that there is a potential for that. But I think doing things, expecting to have right-wing interests controlling the psychedelic landscape and thinking that people are going to magically become not right-wing is a kind of a fool's errand, in my opinion. Nice. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Just in wrapping up, curious, two questions. First of all, I'm curious on a personal level, if you two have had personal psychedelic experiences that have changed your ideology and whether it has moved you left, right, or center? I wouldn't know. I've been reading Noam Chomsky for at least as long as I've been taking psychedelics, but I know the answer is no. I don't particularly identify any psychedelic experience with some ideological shift. I might rather point to somebody like Captain Planet as having a bigger effect on me because it got me at that developmental stage. Maybe we should take care of Go Planet or something. That's, I don't know. I grew up in Portland. What can I say? Yeah. In my case, I feel like I was introduced to psychedelics quite young in my, in terms of my formative development. So it's like my, it's hard to tease apart what psychedelics did for me that life experience might not have been going in that direction anyway. But I've definitely had experiences of profound interconnection. And in my case, and talking to other people at Symposia as well, like there's this being able to see how we're all connected and see things like the dangers of fascism and how the systems create the conditions for different lived experiences. So I, I think in my case, being able to be more aware of the ways that our society structures our experience of reality has been helpful in my own work. And trying to cultivate that aspect of what psychedelics can do is a big part of my ongoing research agenda. But that's it's not a necessity that become the focus. It's a potentiality that I've experienced firsthand. And it's something that I think is worth calling attention to, but it's definitely not something that I think is inherent to psychedelics themselves. Yeah, I would also just add that it's not to say that psychedelics haven't given me a lot of good things, a lot of insight, some confusing things, some hard things. I would probably say that part of my interest, I'm trained as an evolutionary biologist in biology generally was asking, why am I able to experience this? And yet the rest of it, right? I think it's pretty subjective. It was a decade of taking psychedelics with those close friends in the woods, people, high trust environments, low surprise environments before I ever went to anything resembling a rave or a Burning Man event or anything like that. So who knows what it would have been like if instead I dropped the ass into the crowd boys. And just, I guess if I could just elaborate one more thing just that occurred to me. So before I was introduced to LSD, which was my freshman year of college, I was in college, but I was actually, I was considering going into the army. I was like thinking about that. I was planning to major in international relations and politics. And then I took LSD and I just, I realized that from my experience, like so much of the problems that we have at a large societal level are people being captured by various reality tunnels. You can't argue someone out of the reality tunnel necessarily. They're just so absorbed and this is what the world is that it's hard to have even meaningful conversations about it and rational debates and things like that. So I completely switched my career. I had experienced acid, completely switched to studying storytelling and philosophy because I felt like that more fundamental kind of issue behind politics that gives rise to political strife was something that I became more interested in. And that's completely attributable to my psychedelic experience. Mm, that's just, just one thing yeah. since we're sharing firsts real quick, like my first LSD experience was as a freshman in high school and I was not a happy person in high school. And by the end of the night, while still, under the influence, I was able to communicate with my folks and negotiated dropping out of high school. And that was the best decision I could have made. No regrets. It materially changed my life from the get-go. I think hopefully we've established that both of us have both personal and scholastic reasons to believe that, yes, 
Psychedelics can precipitate wild and radical change, and they're powerful. But where that change goes is not a set and settled question. A wonderful place to conclude. Dr. Brian Pace and Shay Devineau, thank you so much for this enlightening and assumption-challenging conversation. I, I really got a lot out of it. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Same here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Brian Pace is a lecturer who teaches psychedelic studies at The Ohio State University. He's trained as an evolutionary ecologist, specializing in phytochemistry, ethnobotany, and ecophysiology. He believes in grassroots drug decriminalization efforts and hopes to find alternative policies to the imperial drug war. For more than a decade, Brian has worked on agroecology and climate change. Dr. Nishe Devineau is a postdoc associate at the Institute for Research in Sensing, or IRIS, at the University of Cincinnati, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at Ohio State University, and the Medicine Society and Culture Research Fellow with Symposia. She also researches and teaches bioethical approaches to psychedelic medicine. She was a research fellow with the New York University Psilocybin Cancer Anxiety Study, where she participated in the first qualitative study of patient experiences. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well.